2: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up
3: quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited
1: by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.
5: Mets fans, welcome to episode 192 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I am Brian Salvatore and this has been a week, ain't it? This has not been one of the best weeks to be a Mets fan this year. We've seen our fair share of injury, we've seen our fair share of losses, we've seen our fair share of Daniel Murphy. But we're going to get through this together. The season's not over yet. There is still reason to be optimistic. And we are going to do that throughout a number of segments this week, try and look on the bright side of things. But first up, I have a conversation with Chris McShane where we answer your questions and talk about the general state of the Mets as we are sitting here at the end of June 2016. Okay, we are here to answer your emails, questions, talk about the Mets, all that sort of stuff. Uh, as always, you can email the show at podcast at audio dot com or tweet at us at Brian Needs a Nap at Chris McShane or at Amazing Avenue. Uh, our email this week comes from uh, what's this gentleman's name? Dave. There we go. It comes from Dave. Hey, pod hosts. Not to overact to a couple of losses to the Nationals, but let's just say, taking a pragmatic look at possible scenario, the wheels come totally off over the next couple of weeks, and we realize this is not our year. Could we profit by going into sell mode? What could we get for Cespedes and Walker, guys who will almost certainly be free agents anyway? And would that be more useful than waiting for the comp picks that might ge- that might generate by sliding with other teams? Might anybody else be for sale? Sorry if it bummed you out. Hopefully this question ends up looking silly in the rearview mirror. Thanks, Dave. Um, well, Chris, you sort of take the approach, whenever we talk about this stuff, of, of the long view and not getting too worried about a couple of losses. Which you know, I I aspire to in my fandom, but I don't always get to uh, get to live in that reality. Sometimes I can get a little panicky myself, but I I, I think this is a valid question. Let's say that you know July first is Friday. Let's say that by July twentieth, the Mets have lost, you know, ten of their last fifteen, and. Duda and uh, Duda doesn't look like it's coming back anytime soon, and the bone spurs in Matz's and Cindergard's elbows look worse, and David Wright's leg falls off, or whatever, whatever terrible things could happen between now and sort of the the days right before the trade deadline. Do you think the Mets as sellers make sense?
6: Yeah, it it could. I'm uh, I'm not ready to entertain. <laughs> that yet but if if it's really worst case scenario from here over you know the next three weeks and everything you just said happens uh you could definitely trade away a couple guys and get back significant returns uh you know you hate to give up on a season I'd much rather they still be even if they're not you know closing in on first place even if they're still hanging around in the the wild card uh, I'd much rather things go the other way. But if things really go down the drain, uh, I have very little doubt that they could get something significant for Neil Walker. Uh, I really don't want to see Cespedis go because I'd still rather him get to the end of the season and say, hey, you know, I won't opt out if you add another year or two. Right. That, that
5: that's, you know, this salary. Yeah, ses- because- Cespedes is a different story than Walker is for sure.
6: Yeah, and and Walker would be easier to sell because, and this sort of is a little foreshadowing for our tweet question, which, mm-hmm. if you're listening, emails are always welcome. But if you want to tweet a question at us, uh, by all means, please do. Yes, go ahead. Uh, so, if you get, you know, if you get to that spot and things are really terrible, and you just want to sell Walker, um, you know, Dilson Herrera could come up and. Potentially be not that big of a drop-off from him anyway. Yeah. Uh, And I like Walker a lot. I like Herrera a lot. Um, So that's a guy who who you could sell uh, if
5: you're in that mode. I also think that um, if you're going to attempt – that you could sell Walker even if you're not giving up on the season. Right. That if if something happens in the next few weeks and you see a glaring need for the Mets – and they're looking at their roster and how can we improve our roster well trading walker for another kind of piece that that might be that might be an option out there you're not going to get somebody of equal value in the majors necessarily because it's very rare that even trades happen at the deadline you know it, it, even in terms of talent today for talent today that just that doesn't tend to happen as much you're going to you're going to find somebody who is looking to rebuild a little bit for next year or for beyond um But I do think that what's interesting about the Mets situation here is that with the exception of Walker, and if we go under the presumption that Cespedes doesn't opt out, I know that's a silly assumption, but let's just go with it for a second. If that's the case, their prognosis for next year doesn't look demonstratively worse than their prognosis was for this year. And so they're not going to sell in the way that This isn't their last year in their window. Let's put it that way. They're not going to be selling in in the extreme way that sometimes teams do if they're going for it one last time and then realize they have a couple of lean years ahead. The Mets are very much going to be in contention next year, no matter what happens this year. So I think that might limit the amount of selling they do at the trade deadline also.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you, you look around the roster and i don't see too many other guys who you might trade you know i guess in a similar vein uh you know bartolo cologne could be available um you know that's you know that's sort of you really are giving up on 2016 because you know he's uh he's been really good and he's been Even if he's not that good the rest of the way, he's been as durable a starter as they've had. Uh, Absolutely. And then, you know, a couple guys in the bullpen could conceivably be traded, but, you know, I I don't think – I think they'd want to get more back for somebody like Addison Reed than they gave up to get him uh, because he's been just so great since he made the switch over to, you know, playing for the Mets. Um but yeah, I, I I think any of those guys can get you a return that is good. And I understand that the farm system is you know not what it was a couple of years ago because all of its best players are on the big league team now, or uh, we you know in the case of Michael Fulmer, we're traded away to get somebody else who really helped the major league team. Um,
5: or in the case of Matt Conforto, was on the major league team and is just being retooled a little bit now in the minors.
6: Yeah. Yeah, I think it, Conforto might be actually one of the reasons why I'm feeling like not all is lost because I just think yeah, I, I don't want to put too much stock into what he did from July through the end of April. But, you know, that was enough to show what he's capable of. And That's three I, quarters of a season. Right. It, it's it's not, you know, you, you really have to see a guy do something well, over the course season. of... Yeah. Yeah, but you you want to see a guy do something over the course of, you know, a year or two or three before you can really say, oh, that's that's who he is. But um but yeah, he he could I I could see him back here sooner than later and looking like a good hitter again.
5: Absolutely. Um is there a date or a number of games out of first place that you have in mind for when your uh, optimism runs out? Hmm. I mean, I guess we get into double digits
6: that (laughs) double digits on any date would be enough. But but I keep going back to the wild card still being an option. You know, there's only there's the three division leaders as we're recording this right now. And then there's four teams that are over 500 and they're all either tied with each other or within a game of each other for the wild card spots. Right. So. I think division-wise if it gets to double digits that's when I start to go okay. Like it would take something crazy to to win the NL East. But in terms of really giving up on the season, I think it would be falling significantly out of the wild card race.
5: And the four teams that are in the wild card race right now, it's the Pirates, the Mets, the Marlins, and I'm blanking on the fourth. Dodgers. Dodgers. I think that the Dodgers and the Pirates are the ones I would worry about. I can't see Miami continuing at this pace.
6: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you never know. And they're there. Yeah. They're still there right now. But, yeah, it's the Dodgers and Pirates. And the Pirates have had a free fall uh, that, that has been steeper than what the Mets have done in their struggles.
5: Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, but then again, it, you know, McCutcheon's looked so bad this year. If he starts to heat up a little bit, that could that could be a, a relatively major difference maker for the Pirates.
6: Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, th- there's no given that you know that they're going to be beatable and that they don't get themselves into a, a strong wild card position. But but yeah, that that's what it would take for me to start going like ah that ticket plan, those September games. They're just a you know. <laughs> That wasn't a great idea, and you know, start thinking about what happens in the off season. I think getting to a point in the wild card that there's either you know a significant game gap, so four or five games out of a wild card spot, or you know, four or five or six teams out of a wild card spot. That right. you know, that that's something that gets really significant there. And you know, I think I've said this before the wild card is certainly not the goal. That's not the prize, but you know, it's, if you can figure you have a 50, 50 shot of winning that game, if you get there, uh, you, I think, you, I think you, it's you, worth keeping yeah. your guys yeah. to have it. You have a chance to make it back to the world series. If you can get into that game. So I
5: agree. I agree. I, I feel like we are, uh, we're on the very fringe of Panic City right now. Yes. But there are some Mets fans who are living in the heart of it already. Oh yeah. Um well we, we alluded to this earlier. Uh Spiker is awesome on Twitter, tweeted at us and said, Dilson Herrera up before September or nah? Um Well, what would have to happen for Herrera to be called up before September? I think you'd have to have Walker either traded away or playing third base more or less full time. Yeah. And so let's say Jose Reyes
6: is either really bad or pulls a hammy.
5: Mm -hmm. Both of which seem like very likely options at this point.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Neither one of those things would surprise me. Yeah. Um, You know. Uh, So, yeah. If for some reason he's incapable of playing, whatever the reason, then I think that could, that could happen. You know, I, we've seen a bunch of teams are interested in Cariel. Um Sandy Alderson certainly hasn't ruled it out. It would be surprising if the Mets signed him, but you know, they've been one of the teams he's had a private workout with and
5: he tweeted himself in Mets gear. Yes. He's done at
6: every stop along the way, but right. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, perhaps They go out and they make a move. But if they're sort of in this same position of hanging in there uh, and Reyes can't cut it, then that to me is the obvious way of like, hey, Neil, you've been great. And we know you're not looking to be a third baseman when you hit free agency. But just for the sake of this team and this season – give third base a real shot uh, and get Herrera up just because, you know, at some point is it to me right now? I, I would think if you called both of them up in two weeks, well, I'll give Reyes the full time to, uh, you know, play minor league games and get back into the uh, hang of playing baseball because mm-hmm. there was a, almost a two week break where he didn't play in a game after the Rockies cut him. Right. So, Give it two more weeks to come up. You know, I, I know Reyes has the stolen base ability, but as a hitter, I'd actually put my money on Herrera being the better hitter of the two.
5: I, I don't disagree with that at all. Uh I think Herrera at this point in his career has far more upside than Reyes has at this point in his career. Um Yeah, like I I mean I'd actually kind
6: of prefer that they, you know, Say Reyes makes it back. He knocks the 25th man off the roster. You know, I'd rather have him be sort of pinch runner, uh, maybe play once or twice a week kind of thing, and then do this the Dilson Herrera-Walker shuffle uh, in in combination with it. So, you know, I guess it it is possible to have all three of them on the roster at the same time. Um, But I would... Yeah, it, it it's a long answer, but the short answer to the question is I think he's absolutely up before September because if any infielder gets hurt or if Reyes is bad, that seems to be the next solution to go to before having to either pay Buriel or give up prospects to trade for somebody else.
5: Yeah, I uh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I I actually think that the most likely outcome of the Reyes situation is that he starts, you know. I I've heard rumblings of he's gonna be called up on a Friday. Have you heard that as well?
6: Uh I actually had not. Okay. I, I would I, I hope I hope not. Uh I'd like to see him get more than at the time that we're recording this one hit in his minor league <laughs> stint.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Uh before he comes up. I'm uh, I'm going to the game on Sunday and I don't think I wanna deal with the personal emotions <laughs> of being at a Reyes game this early. I, I still I'm still working through how I feel about all of this, right? Um, You know, we're not going to get into that. We talked about that last week, but you know, you understand what I'm saying. Um,
6: I do. I, I would, yeah, being there for that first, because there's going to be a loud Jose chance.
5: Yes, there is
6: in the in his first game back at home, and uh, I don't know. I, I, you know, one of the things. We we won't go too far into it, but one of the things that Sandy Alderson said in talking about it was that it was a second chance with conditions, right? Right. It was a conditions uh, or a word similar to that. So that would be more how I would hope the initial reaction is, and I know that's not going to be the case. So I agree. I was uh,
5: I was at a barbecue on Saturday with my brother in law and his family and they had some friends coming over and the one friend was a Mets fan and he walked in the backyard and just started doing the Jose 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 chant and and like pumping his fists in the air and he was all excited about it. And I was just thinking like I can't I can't get on board with that yet. I just can't do it. Right. You know, um I know he released a written statement and all that, but I just I, I'm not ready. I'm not there yet. So anyway what I was saying was I really think that the most likely scenario here is that Reyes is going to start a dozen games for the Mets. I don't think he's going to have that much left in the tank. And I think you're going to see him in more of that bench role. Because I don't see the Mets being as quick with cutting him as they would be somebody not named Jose Reyes. Even with the last year of his career, I feel like the Mets bringing him back is such a symbolic gesture right? that they're not going to cut ties that quickly. So hopefully the, they manage to win the games that he's playing poorly in and that's kind of then the best case scenario for everybody where he still remains on the team. He still has a role, but he's not being glorified by the fan base. And to me, there's no way that a lineup with Walker and Herrera in it would be worse than one of them and Reyes. Right. There's no way.
6: Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, uh, One of the things that's come up a little bit too around him in terms of uh, performance is, you know, his on-base ability and, you know, he's had some decent on-base percentages in some of his seasons, but it's been a while. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm sorry. My, uh, my MacBook screen (laughs) sorry listeners my macbook screen is being uh it's bugging out again oh yeah it's been sort of an ongoing issue uh i know all of you care but (laughs) you you heard plenty about jeff's macbook in the past and now you're hearing about mine
5: (laughs) and i don't have a macbook so i can't join into this but you know that's all right but uh uh,
6: but yeah sorry it, it distracted me from finishing that thought but what was I saying? Something about Reyes. Reyes
5: on-base percentage being lame lately. Oh,
6: right, right, right. Yeah, so he's had some decent ones in some seasons, but he's never been particularly elite in terms of that. Uh, you know, a good on-base percentage plus the ability to steal bases, I think makes for a very nice player. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just hasn't done both of those things at the same time right. in a while. Uh, so, there, you know, there's... There's that, and then last season his on base percentage was like three ten, and he played in Toronto and Colorado. And you know, even if you buy into he was unhappy in Colorado and kind of sulked and you know just wasn't there and didn't perform because of it. Even then, his numbers coming out of Toronto weren't that great. So you know, he he played in parks that were very friendly to hitters. Parks where pitchers constantly have to try to you know, work around and avoid serving up home runs. Uh, and he still didn't get on base at that great of a rate. So, yeah, sort of if you read or hear that, oh, Reyes is back, whether it's Friday or Sunday or next Friday or whenever, uh, you know, and, and the Mets they got themselves a leadoff hitter. I'm not so sure that that's true. You know, even if the power isn't there and even if the stolen base total is or the rate, I should say, is half of what it used to be. I'm not so sure that you know he makes more sense at the top of the order than than uh, anybody else on the team.
5: I agree completely. Before we get off here, let's just do a quick um, worried or not worried about a couple of topics here. Uh, Chris, sure. are you worried or not worried about the bone spurs reportedly in Syndergaard and Matt's elbows?
6: Um. Uh, I'm going to go with not worried on Syndergaard and somewhat worried
5: on Mats. Are you not worried on Syndergaard just because he's a freak of nature?
6: Uh, Yeah, slightly. And, you know, sort of the fact that he's got a small bone spur that, you know, he's saying feels fine. And I know players aren't always going to disclose everything, (laughs) but You know, he had a rough start in Washington this week, but I really don't think it was that. Uh, I think it was just a bad start. Um, And there's almost sort of a comfort in knowing that now because, you know, he's had a few times that he's reported, you know, uh, soreness, discomfort, whatever, with his elbow. And every time they look at the ligaments, they're fine. And now we know that there's actually a, you know, there's something there that would cause him discomfort. Yeah, right. It, to feel that way, it's not something that's just means you know he's going to miss a year. Yeah. So that that to me is, you know, I'd rather he had nothing wrong and didn't have to go to the doctor at all. Uh, but there's some strange comfort in that for me. And then with Matt's it's just you know they're in comparison to Syndergaard where they're saying it's a bigger thing uh mm-hmm. you know it's it's a little more concerning i mean i'm not i'm not thinking that he will necessarily be you know sent for surgery immediately um but it's you know i think i'm going to have that in the back of my mind a little bit more after each one of his starts
5: yeah and also you know he's just one of these guys who seems to get hurt more than the average player over the course of his career so far. So when you hear something like bone spurs when the player when you couple that with a player who has been hurt a number of times in his career it just it seems like it, there's potential for it to be more serious and for someone like Cindergard, who seems to be as I said before kind of a freak of nature physically. So Yeah. Uh worried not worried about Granderson's calf. Uh, as we record this Wednesday night, Granderson did not start because of a sore calf. He was pulled last night after the second rain delay. Um, yeah, worried, not worried.
6: Uh, as we record, he's taking hacks in the on-deck circle. Can I wait <laughs> for the at-bat? <laughs> <laughs> nope, I yeah, do it right now. I'm going to say not worried. Uh, not to not to just default to that, but uh, I guess maybe i've i've become a little bit um accustomed to injuries or worn down over the years but until there is a mat- uh, medical mat uh, <laughs> mat's medical i don't know what that word just was <laughs> that i said until there's a medical diagnosis on something you know I, i'm i don't i try not to react to it too much so
5: Okay, this is kind of related to that. Worried, not worried about the Mets' propensity for playing short. Hmm. Because to me, that's maybe the most worrisome thing this season.
6: Yeah. I mean, so I'll, I'll on the uh, either or. I'll say worried. Mm-hmm.
5: Um, it, I just don't, think- I don't. I don't like the look of it. I, I don't like the the implication that it's okay to play short staffed
6: yeah i mean it's sort of a like in the reality of the rules of of major league baseball in 2016 uh there's just not that there's not that much flexibility right with with the disabled list and you know that choice between 15 days without a guy and you know Balancing that with maybe having five days without him, but playing short in the meantime.
5: Um, See, yeah. to me, this would be less worrisome if these guys sat out two or three days and then didn't hit the disabled list. Right. But it seems like the the trend has been like Lagaris. you know, he sat out three, four days, got into one game and then hit the disabled list. Yeah. I w- you know, it, it just, to me, seems like it's a, uh, it hasn't come back to bite them as badly as it could have so far this year. There haven't been too many games where you can point to and say, you know, oh, if they only had a 25th man on the roster, this would this game would have been winnable. We haven't had a concrete moment like that yet, but I think that it's just a, uh, I don't think it's a great way to go about your business, especially this time of year. Yeah,
6: yeah it's it's one of those things that, and you know maybe the maybe the rule doesn't need to be changed. Maybe it's sort of by design uh, for this reason. But you know, say it's say you had a ten day disabled list, right? Or a I mean, seven
5: day disabled list, yeah.
6: Right. There's I mean there's the seven for the concussions. Mm-hmm. Um, but say it was somewhere in that range, you'd probably have an easier time saying, "All right, Lagaris, you know." Bent his thumb into uh, the completely wrong direction, making a great catch. Let's put him on that for you know for a week or a little more. Uh, you know, we'll call somebody up. We'll get by, and then we'll have him. You know, he doesn't even have to leave the team necessarily. We'll have him rest for a few days and get into some practice and see how everything feels. And you know, you can you can experiment a little more with it. You know, it's sort of a strange thing where. Like, if that existed, mm-hmm. I think the concern would be that teams would abuse it with pitchers. Yes. So it would be interesting. And I'm sure there's no way this would ever fly, but it'd be interesting if there was a different disabled list for pitchers and position players.
5: Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. It's,
6: you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm always a little bit surprised, and I think I've said this before too, but I'm always a little surprised teams don't manipulate the back ends of their rosters a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cycling guys, you know, the last man or last two men in the bullpen, uh, you know, the back end of a bench, you know,
5: sort of of using AAA as like an extended piece of the roster. Yeah, I mean, the difference between a Ty Kelly and an Eric Campbell on the roster isn't so great that you don't want to burn one or the other you know you, right. you can rotate those guys reasonably well
6: right and even Logan Verrett and Eric Goodell, same you know same idea uh you know you can right now they're both on the roster but they're guys that you could swap out and you know no offense to either of them but not really notice a huge difference <laughs> right
5: uh you know my my question with all of this though is we're talking about you know would a 10 day DL be better than a 15 day DL does it really make that much of a difference if it's going to be 10 days or 15 days
6: uh well I feel like
5: I can be convinced either way I'm not I'm not coming at this with a with a right. position necessarily I'm, I'm really asking the question do you think it makes that much of a difference if somebody is out from a you know from a game management standpoint from a season management standpoint do those five days really make a big difference
6: yeah, I don't know. I mean, there might uh, the so the reason I, it comes to mind for me is that 15 days in the way baseball is scheduled, you know, you're sort of guaranteed uh, that there's, except for some stretches where you have uh, no off days, you're pretty much guaranteed to have one off day
5: in there. But it's not two, depending on the time of the year that the DL stint is happening.
6: Right. So yeah, so that's I mean obviously if you're putting a guy in the DL you're hoping that's the case, you know. He you know, say he was borderline. Oh, we've got two off days coming up, so that means he only misses 13 games. Uh, you know, that's that's significant, but I think in a typical 15-day stretch, you're sort of saying, all right, he's going to miss you know, four full series. Mhm. Um, so if you, if you reduce it a little bit, then you're saying, all right, he's going to miss three series or, you know, maybe, maybe two series plus an off day, depending on how things go. So I don't know if it's dramatically different, but I guess I'm just sort of trying to think of a way that it, it allows teams to react more rapidly to that questionable player. Okay. Okay. You know, I mean, to counter that, I guess how many times has a guy been put on the DL and five days later it's like, ah, you know, shit. What do we do? He's healthy. Does that happen that often? Right. No, I don't. I I can't recall that ever happening.
5: Can you? I can't think of any player (laughs) who's put on the and maybe. Part of that is the media perception, right? The media is not reporting like you know in his first day, uh, you know, in his third day on the DL, you know. David Wright looks like uh, the second coming of Barry Bonds in 1996. Like you know, you don't, you just don't hear that because they're not playing in rehab games yet. They're not
6: right. You yeah, know. It's like the, the guy's going to get a certain amount of time off, right, before he even, you know, goes to St. Lucie and gets in the batting cage or on the mound, whatever it may be. Right. So yeah, I guess it's sort of built in that like <laughs> the system is just not going to let that ever happen. Um,
5: but yeah, it, it's, I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Yeah. To, to me, roster construction has, has meant a lot more this year because I feel like in years past, the perception was the Mets had no depth and the reality in a lot of ways is the Mets had no depth and they started this year and you heard the, the that conversation changing And now that we're a few injuries in, you see that depth wasn't as deep as maybe it was perceived to be. And I just keep thinking of things like, all right, well, you know, if LeGarris had hit the DL when that started, when he was able to, would he be back already now? Like physically, would he be back already? Maybe, we don't really know. Um, You know, getting Nimmo up is a nice thing, but I don't know if it's all that important of a thing in the long run. So I I don't know if there's a – what I'm trying to say is I don't know if there's a practical application for for that this year in terms of you can point to one specific injury and say, oh, they should have DL'd this guy right away because X, Y, Z would have happened. I don't know if we can point to that necessarily, but I do think it is – to me it's concerning because it just seems this team is, is very willing to play Short on the field, and I, and I don't, I don't particularly like that. And, and they've been lucky that they've had very few extra inning games as well, because playing short and extra innings is incredibly difficult. Yeah, it is. Well, all right, Chris. Um, hopefully, we can have a happy conversation next week. Yeah. Hopefully, they sweep the Cubs this weekend.
6: Yes, they. Uh, by the next time you hear us, uh, they will have played the four game series with the Cubs and they'll be wrapping up their uh, actually they'll play they will have played the whole three game series against the Marlins as well yeah that's true so they'll be gearing up to play the Nationals again
5: (laughs) (laughs) that's all we need (laughs)
7: Steve Schreiber here. It's time for your This Week in SNY Minute on Amazing Avenue Audio. So today we go back to June 22nd. That was Wednesday uh, in the game against the Royals. uh, With runners at first and second and Neil Walker up, Royals first baseman Eric Cosmer uh, decided to run in as if he was defending a bunt. So this is with, of course, Neil Walker up batting right-handed which he's hitting he was hitting well over 300 um so gary mentioned it and uh t- keith off a little bit uh and of course he had one great line as as he typically does
4: first and second and nobody out Osmer creeping in from first as though he's expecting walker to bunt are you kidding are you kidding it's a cleanup hitter and a guy who's hitting 347 this year as a right-hand batter mm-hmm. with five home runs from this side of the play. I don't understand. And he's kind of playing in no man's land right here. Now they've got him behind Ses Yeah, but still, get back. I mean it's poked foul and it's one on one to Walker. Osmer's chatting up uh, Cespedes us at first base. I was just saying, I don't know how you play this in the National League. I thought you guys always bounced. That's why I was in. I suggest to him that he gets back further. And now he gets back a little further. Nice curveball. Backdoor breaking ball for a strike one and two. Two strikes now. Fourth hitter, bunt was never on. Now it for sure, and Hosmer hasn't moved deeper than where he's at last the entire at bat. That is amazing to me. One to two to Walker with Flores on deck, and Duffy takes a look at Cabrera. Well, Hosmer's now in a little not to pick on him. He's in a better position now. He could go a little maybe five, ten feet deeper. Three-time Gold Glover. I know. Got eight to go. At least. That's just to catch you. He might like to pass you.
7: And there's Keith with the uh, the KO there. That that was a, uh, a beautiful moment uh, between Carrie and Keith. So that's all we've got today. This has been your This Week in SNY Minute. I'm Steve Schreiber. Now back to Amazing Avenue Audio.
2: Hello, Mets fans. This is Aaron York again for Amazing Avenue Audio. And these have been kind of crappy days for the Mets recently. I'm recording on a Tuesday afternoon, which means the Mets just got clobbered by the Nationals, 11-4, even though Noah Syndergaard was starting and even though the Mets got out to a 4-0 lead. It turns out that two of the Mets' best pitchers this year, Steven Matz and Noah Syndergaard, both have bone spurs in their throwing elbows. And while both guys sound like they will be able to pitch through the injuries, we don't know if they're going to be as effective as they were at the start of the season when both guys were two the best pitchers in baseball. And we don't know if they're going to need surgery after the season. It sounds like that's going to be something that needs to happen. So not a lot of fun for Mets fans right now, but I'm going to talk about something that is a lot of fun. And that's how well that James Loney has played since the Mets signed him at the end of May to take over at first base with Lucas dude out with a back injury. Now, Lone has played surprisingly well for a guy who was just hacking away in the San Diego Padres minor league organization. He was playing for the Triple H the Triple A the El Paso Chihuahuas, which is one of the better-named minor league clubs, except for the Hartford Yard Goats, or what will hopefully be known as the Binghamton Rumble Ponies. So anyway. Loney was just hanging out at at AAA for San Diego, and the Mets were able to acquire him for cash considerations because the Padres have bigger issues to deal with than a minor league first, first baseman. Their whole situation is a story for another day. But what Loney has given the Mets is someone who's been very consistent. He more often than not gets a hit in each game, he's got a hit in 14 of his last 15 games with the Mets, and he's even shown a surprising amount of power. He He's hit two home runs for the Mets so far, the last one coming in an 8-6 win over Atlanta on June 24th. That was a big home run that the Mets ended up needing as they almost blew an 8-0 lead, ended up hanging on to win 8-6. Ohlone has been a real source of stability in a lineup that we don't even know if they're going to score a run every day but Loney's been someone who's gone out there and he's done what we want him to do. He doesn't strike out all the time. His strikeout rate has been pretty consistent with his career numbers, it's around 12%. He's drawing a few walks, a few more walks than he drew last year with Tampa Bay when his walk rate was 6%. He's moved that up to about 7%. But the power is really surprising. His isolated power is 149. That's the highest it's been since he his second year with the Dodgers in 2007. Since then, he's been the guy that we've come to know. Someone who makes contact, draws a couple walks, and hits about double-digit home runs, but doesn't really come close to 20 home runs. So what he's done with the Mets at this advanced age, he is thirty-two years old. He just turned 32 years old in May. What he's doing now is a is a really nice surprise, especially the power. Now he's probably not gonna continue hitting for that kind of power. That's why he was a minor league player at the start of the year, and that's why he had a WRC plus of just 88 with Tampa Bay last year. But Loney's probably gonna be probably gonna continue to be a useful player and if he continues hitting for a little bit of power and getting base hits as often as he has, he's batting 298, 353, .447 for the year. There are going to be some people who say, hey, we should keep playing him even after Lucas Duda comes back, but it's easy to forget how awesome Lucas Duda has been the past two years for this club. He's shown the ability to hit 30 home runs and take a bunch of walks. Now, obviously, Duda's going to make more outs. He's going to strike out more than Loney, but the upside of his power is just too much to keep out of the lineup unless Loney starts hitting even more home runs than he has already. He still only has two, although the power numbers are good. Unless he improves even on that, which would be really incredible, then Duda should be able to step back in whenever he comes back. But I just want to get Mets fans ready for the people that are going to want to keep Loney in the lineup if he keeps hitting like this. But even if we do put Duda in the lineup instead of Loney, he could still be really useful as a bat off the bench, as a late-inning replacement somewhere. He's not a great defensive first baseman, although I felt like he had that reputation coming in. has has him as a below-average guy for pretty much his whole career, with some seasons worse than others. So he's not giving the Mets... Too much in on defense that Duda isn't giving them. The bottom line is that James Loney has been really awesome, but that doesn't mean that he's been better than Lucas Duda. But it does mean that he can continue to be helpful for the Mets for the entire season and not just while they're waiting for Lucas Duda to come back. This has been Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio.
8: Welcome to Forgotten Mets. I'm your host this week, Milo Tabi. A couple weeks ago, we profiled Ronnie Cedeno. He was a shortstop on the 2012 Mets. This week, we're focusing on another member of the 2012 team, arguably the most beloved number 33 in franchise history, talking, of course, about Vinny Rotino. Indeed. Uh, Vinny had an interesting skill set. He was basically a right-handed utility man who was also able to catch. Uh, over the course of his career, he started 293 minor league games behind the plate. His career started on a, a promising note in the Brewers organization. He posted solid numbers at the AA and AAA levels between 2005 and 2007. Uh, Retino only had cups of coffee in Milwaukee, however, appearing in 18 games over three seasons. He had a short stint with the Marlins, got some more uh, Major League time before he joined the Mets in 2012. The team purchased his contract after demoting Chris Schwinden, who would be an interesting forgotten Mets candidate. Uh, Rotino never caught with the Mets, however. He split time with Lucas Duda in the outfield, when Lucas Duda still played the corner outfield. He would also start against lefties at first base, giving Ike Davis a rest. Uh, Vinny produced hits against some pretty well-known southpaws around the league, uh, David Price, Cole Hamels, Andy Pettit. He hit a pair of home runs as well in his 18 games as a Met, but otherwise he hit just 182 and would lose his roster spot to another forgotten Mets candidate, left-hander Justin Hampson. Uh, Retina would receive big league time with the Indians later in the season before joining the Oryx Buffaloes in Japan. Uh, becoming one of the rare players to spend time with both the Bisons and the Buffaloes in one season. I'll wrap things up with some fun Vinny Rotino facts. His first Major League home run, off Clayton Richard of the Padres, came at 32 years old in his 32nd Major League game. That's kind of cool. You, the listener, can purchase a game-used Vinny Rotino Mets jersey for $79 on eBay. Not a bad value. And during one minor league game, he played all nine positions of the field, including pitcher. I found uh, some audio of him speaking about this game while he was playing with the KBO,
5: in South Korea. You should include pitcher, right? No, I don't pitch. Uh, I I pitched once. Once? Yes, I pitched once.
3: It was an A-ball, low-level of minor leagues. Mm-hmm. Just played all, all the different positions in one game. In one game? Yeah, it was just a fun thing. It was the last game of the season.
8: Right. There you have it. Now 36 years old, Vinny is still playing in the White Sox organization. He's playing in Triple A. am sure all of us at Amazing Avenue wish Vinny Rotino all the best in the future. Hopefully the White Sox call him up in September. Uh, until then, this has been Milo Taby with this week's edition of Forgotten Mets.
5: James Wagner is in a really interesting position as a beat writer this year. He used to cover the Washington Nationals, and now he is covering the New York Mets for the New York Times. He has a very interesting story about life and writing, and Chris gets uh, to chat with him right now. So follow him on Twitter, at ByJamesWagner, and uh, enjoy this conversation with James and Chris McShane. Joining
6: us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio is James Wagner. If you... Are a Mets fan on Twitter. You know him as WAGs, thanks to several other beat writers. Uh but he <laughs> he just recently made the switch from covering the Nationals for the Washington Post to covering the Mets for the New York Times. So, James, welcome on the uh podcast and welcome to the Mets side of things.
3: Well, thanks, man. Thanks for having me and uh glad to be here.
6: So last year was uh a bit of a roller coaster for Mets fans. And the Mets themselves, you know, the way things unfolded and just sort of how crazy things were from the end of July to the end of the season. Uh, in that process, we heard a lot about what was going on in the Nationals clubhouse. Uh, what was that season like? I know you're around, you know, before you made this uh, switch, you were around the Mets a lot since the teams play, you know, so many times each year. But what was that couple of months like on the other side? Yeah, I mean it's
3: was the you know, as you know, like you know the Nats were, you know, first place, you know, early in the season, and they were in first place for a decent amount of time, before they kind of you know relinquished the lead to the Mets. I think it was like around you know mid-summertime. Yeah, and and you know, and then after that, the you know the Nats had to play catch up the entire time. But I still remember you know the the Nats being in first place, going into was just around. Uh, trade deadline time uh, is the end of July. Uh, the Nets had a lead. I think it was a th- you know three game lead uh, going into New York. They played a series there. Uh, you know the to the Nationals bullpen. You know was a, was an issue last season and undermined them. You know uh, you know several times at key moments and, and that was one of them. And, I, and and people you know still remember because it stood out. You know the the, the bullpen failed them. Um, there were some there was some moves by the, the manager Matt Williams. I think that were. They were much debated and questioned that series too, you know, as to what relievers used when and, you know, when, you know, sticking with a starter, you know, too long. I think it was a game where, you know, he stuck with, you know, Joe Ross too long. I think due to, you know, Lucas Duda, you know, played a pivotal role in that series. And then the Nats left New York tied. I mean, after that, you know, things really weren't the same again for the rest of the way for the Nationals. You know, the Mets, you know, took over first place. You know they had, they had added Cespedes, Uribe, and, and you know Kelly Johnson uh, a couple weeks before, and just at the trade deadline, um, and, and those players made a huge different huge difference. I mean the Mets' offense, you know, was transformed. Uh, they took off in the second half. You know, the, you know the Nets still had a chance. I think they in next like September, know, uh, they were still down several games, and, and they played each other in D.C. Um, and then just got smoked by the Mets again. So I think. Yeah, it was it was a, the swing of emotions, even on on the national side, was you know interesting to watch. I think overall, what stood out to me more than anything is that I think the Nets were almost taken by surprise by the Mets. I think they knew that they would be good. The pitching was good at, when getting there. Uh, I think maybe it arrived earlier than they thought, and uh, they were better than they thought they would be that that soon.
6: Yeah, yeah, that that sounds about right. Uh, so you started the season uh, covering the nationals as well. How did the switch come about?
3: Yeah. Without getting into like, uh, you know, kind of boring, uh, you know, personnel stuff, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I worked, you know, I've worked for the Washington post for the last, you know, I worked for the Washington post for about, you know, six years. You know I started at the, at the post in 2010. Uh, I can't say the post in New York, sorry. The Washington post, you know, the post in New York means something else, but, um, i worked there for about six years you know i'd covered high school sports you know I'm, I'm from the area um i covered high school sports for about a year and a half uh two years and then you know moved to the nationals beat in 2012. you know the the washington Post had you know had not covered baseball with two people before uh on one beat uh up until 2012 and then myself and my colleague you know former colleague adam kilgore you know covered the team together for about you know three years um then he left the beat uh, then a new beat reporter joined me, uh, Chelsea Janes. Uh, she stayed, you know, when I left. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I th- you, know, you know, I'm from the area. I loved working for the Washington Post. It was a dream of mine to work for, you know, like my, my hometown paper. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the, the the covering covering the Mets for the New York Times is also a, a unique challenge, something new, something I wanted to try. Uh, the New York Times has sort of a different style of covering baseball. And it's something that appealed to me. Um, yeah and working from going from one great newspaper newspaper to another great newspaper was fun um and a, and a challenge I wanted to try
6: yeah well uh congrats on the new gig and uh, Thanks, man. so I guess since Mets fans you know may not have read everything in the post uh although i I really enjoyed uh, the work that you did there and Adam uh over the last few seasons I thought it was some of the best coverage of baseball that there really was, but for Mets fans who might not know you or your work too well yet uh, you know, what is it that you love about baseball? What, what is it, what is it that you hate in the game? You know, what, <laughs> how do you look at uh, the sport?
3: Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess uh, you know, I guess let's give the more personal answer, but I mean, you know, I've grown up around baseball. Was, you know, I played as a little kid um, and, it, and also, also just, the sport that appealed to me the most and more than anything, you know, I mean, uh, I'm a uh, Nicaraguan American, you know, my dad's from the United States. My mom's from Nicaragua and it's Central America. Uh, baseball is part of the culture um, in Latin America. It's huge. So, I mean, it, it was not just, you know, not just something I liked, but it's something that, you know, in it's the national sport in Nicaragua, uh, you know, so it's, it's always, it's a big part of my life culturally in that way too. Uh, I lived overseas you know, growing up, I grew up in Latin America as well, and other places like Venezuela, uh, where baseball is huge as well. So you know, it was, you know, whether I wanted it to be or not, it was, it was always going to be a part of my life, cause it's based on the places I lived and you know where I'm from. So, yeah, I mean, I you know, you know, I just you know, when I wanted to become a sports reporter, uh, baseball was kind of the most obvious and natural fit. Um, and also now, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a native Spanish speaker through my mom, so the the chance to give you know, you know, L- L- Latino players, you know, Spanish-speaking baseball players, a voice that don't have one, it has always meant a lot to me. I think sometimes they're misunderstood, um, really just, you know, they're not understood, period, or not not heard from as often as they should be, even though they make up, you know, a large percentage of the players. Uh, I think that has always meant a lot to me. I think that's something that still appeals a lot to me. There's a interesting subculture of, you know, Latin, Latino players in baseball that, you know, that I, I think I find that interesting and, and worth writing about. So, yeah, I mean, not just the sport itself and, you know, baseball is a complicated and, and intense and um, interesting sport, but on top of that, just the cultural layers to it, I think were always been fascinating to me and, and something that, you know, I, I did at the Washington Post and, you know, hope to continue it into the New York times.
6: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's about time that baseball made it mandatory that these players have translators. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I think it's, the Mets have a couple of their most beloved players, Ioannis Tespedes and Barcelo Colon, you know, they, they prefer to do interviews in Spanish. So the translation is definitely great, but I think, you know, the ability for you to conduct that interview without a translator sort of, you know, opens things up.
3: Yeah. I mean, the interpreters like should have been mandatory in baseball a long time ago. You know, teams should have had it, you know, um, you know, players that, players that came from, uh, you know, Asia, Japan, you know, uh, you know, whether it's Japan or, or, or South Korea or, or whatever it would be, I mean, or Taiwan, I mean, you know, they had in, in their contracts, they had, you know, provisions that it would, it would get them an interpreter, but, you know, Latino players, you know, didn't have that, you know, they, they had to learn English in the minor leagues or had to learn English at the academies or, or, or in the majors. But yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense that, you know, along that, that these guys have that, I mean, it's, these are important players or some of the best players. Um, I mean, for marketing wise, the fact that they can, you know, express themselves, you know, more clearly and, and deeper, uh, you know, I think it, it only helps, you know, make them more human uh, to people. So it's, it's not just like the language, but just, you know, understanding it at a deeper deeper level, their culture, you know, all those things. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I wouldn't put it all on, on the in MLB and the, and the players union, but, you know, journalism as, as an industry, I think sort of, And maybe failed in that sense and not getting you know enough spanish-speaking baseball reporters
0: yeah
6: yeah so uh just switching gears a little bit to back to the mets and what's going on with them now uh you know you sort of came over in an interesting time there were already a lot of injuries i think on your your first day on the mets beat uh yeah there are more potential ones recently. Uh you know, the team has sort of been sputtering, but the Nationals have too. You know, we're recording this one game into the Mets in that series. Uh so the Mets at the moment are four games out of first place. Mm. You know, what's what's your sense of the room uh right now with the Mets? You know, I, I think you know, the famous phrase or, or destination is Panic City, you know, after Sandy Alderson yeah. said it yeah. last year. And I think that mood is definitely there among fans at this point, starting to question the whole season. But, you know, what's what's your sense of the that room right now?
3: The players are fine. I mean, they know it's a long season. Um, you know, obviously probably fr- frustrated that uh, the offense can't be, uh, you know, more consistent um, and more productive on a regular basis. But, you know, I, I would say, you know, what stood out to me more than anything is, you know, uh you know terry collins and, and i know he could kind of, you know obviously the leader of the team is a manager but just like the the level of frustration you know i've seen with him even in the past you know t- two plus weeks um just with injuries you know i mean no manager you know they they want to talk about baseball how they're managing their team strategy you know getting players right you know how a player is doing well you know things like that you, you don't want to spend the majority of their time talking about who's hurt um how they're hurt how much they're hurt how much time they'll miss how he will manage them through an injury if he's more worried about leaving them in a game because they're injured, you know, stuff like that. It's just consumed so much of, you know, the discourse the last, you know, two-plus weeks. I think that it's, it's it's kind of worn on him. I think there are a couple incidents, as you guys, a couple, an incident, as you guys know, or just it, it was so open, you know, with him with the cameras rolling about how frustrated he was with the injuries Um, I talked to, you know, one of the, the PR guys. But, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that, I mean, it stood out to me, and I think – We'll, we'll see what the team will do. I mean, at a certain point, you know, this team is built on pitching and specifically starting pitching. And, you know, when injuries happen to those guys, I think that's probably the most alarming because, you know, they, they've stayed afloat because their pitching has been so good. Um, and if that's undermined in any way, I think, you know, I think they're in trouble.
6: Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's not the worst injury news yet, uh, you know, but mm-hmm. hearing that two of the four – Best pitchers, and not to take away from Bartolo Colon because he's been excellent this year. You know, I mean, he's he's third on the team in ERA right now. But two two of the four young hard throwing pitchers, you know, dealing with these bone spurs that Noah Syndergaard may or may not have, uh, depending on who you ask. But <laughs> but yeah, that it it's it's concerning. You know, it's not it, they're not season ending sort of things, but they're things that you know are going to be in the back of everybody's mind going forward. So It'll be interesting to see how that plays out and uh you know we we hear a lot about players in the Mets are looking at you know they're looking at Yulieski Goriel, they're you know said to be interested in unel Escobar uh but they brought back Jose Reyes so I guess that uh, my last question for today uh I know uh, everybody's had a take on on Reyes coming back um sure. What do what do you think of that situation and the way that they're handling it? Yeah, I mean,
3: I mean personally, it probably doesn't really matter what what I think about it, (laughs) but I think I would I'll say I'll say that like, you know, I mean, the Mets are probably uh, probably the only place, uh, maybe maybe if not the only place, one of the few places that he could actually really do this, that he could get a second chance. I mean, I think, you know, I think in in the in the Times, one of my colleagues wrote a story, just a broader story about. Domestic, you know, domestic violence and baseball players, you know, with Reyes and Chapman. Um, and it was interesting, you know, he spoke to a domestic violence expert who kind of said, you know, he, that the, the player that, a, you know, you ha- that, that, that a spouse or whatever it was, you know, the, the victim would be, you know, leery of speaking out or talking about things. Um, if they knew that it would affect, you know, their their spouse's career forever. Um, and also on top of that, that, that in order to really, you know, improve the situation and get better, you know, the, the, the the so-called, you know, the the domestic violence abuser, uh, maybe have to go somewhere, you know, that knows them somewhere like home, somewhere that can help them around people that they trust, uh, that can help them get better. So I think that stood out to me because, you know, this is, this is home, you know, this is home for Jose Reyes. He spent 12 years with the Mets. He signed there as a 16 year old. He grew up in the organization, uh, became an all-star, became, became an adult, um, you know, and, and he's around people he trusts, you know, people that he's known for a while, from Sandy Alderson to Terry Collins. Uh, so I think, you know, if he's going to do try to get better and, you know, try to become a better person in that sense and mature and, and fix, you know, fix the problems that led led to that incident uh, with his wife, uh, you know, I think, you know, this could be the place to do so. So, yeah, yeah I mean, like, you know, should he be blackballed forever and, you know, and, and ostracized and, you know in, you know, from baseball forever because of that, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's probably a larger issue and maybe he shouldn't, but, you know, he obviously paid a penalty, you know, the Mets, you know, I think they they kind of framed it the best way they could, you know, when they explained about bringing him back and said that, you know, that you know he paid a penalty, that there'll be conditions of him staying in terms of continuing counseling. So in that sense, you know, I think this was probably, you know, if Reyes was going to get a path back to baseball, I think, you know, this was, this was, Maybe the only only place and way to do it.
6: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that sums it up well, and uh, we'll we'll wrap it up there. But thanks thanks again for coming on, uh, and listeners, you can find James on Twitter at by James Wagner, uh, and look for his work in the Times. And yeah, the the piece you referenced there, I thought was a very uh, a very good one. And and Gary Cohn had brought it up on the broadcast as well. Uh, the other day, and just sort of that angle that you just spoke to was something that I don't think a lot of us had considered uh, from you know the victim's sure. perspective. So, so yeah, I definitely recommend recommend checking that out, and uh, of course checking out James's work from here on out. Awesome, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it, and uh, you know anytime. All right.
5: Before we bring in Lucas Vlahos with the weekly stat, I just want to say. Uh, Good luck and fare thee well to uh, our friend Noel Purcell. He is taking a step away from Mason Avenue as he goes on to become a lawyer. So one of these days when you're in jail and you need to uh, call a lawyer to get you out, hopefully you call our pal Noel. Uh, In all seriousness, good luck, buddy. Um, You know, yeah, good luck. I don't know what else to say. (laughs) I, I guess I thought I had something more profound than that to say, but I don't. Um. Good luck, Noel, and take it away, Lucas. Hello,
9: Mets fans, and welcome to the weekly stat. Uh, recording this on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, after uh, another horrible loss to the Nationals, uh, five at nothing. After a couple rain delays, as the Mets offense continues to sputter, uh, and that had been what I had meant to talk about originally uh, for this segment. Uh, just to rant about the struggling Mets offense and how the season is on the brink of collapse, but I I, I got a little sick of uh, putting myself, uh, making myself uh, more upset about the 2016 Mets. So uh, hopefully to brighten both my my day and yours, uh, I thought we'd look at the aspect of the team that is performing up to expectations and perhaps even beyond them, and that is of course our starting pitching we know that 40% of that rotation now has elbow sp- uh, bone spurs in their elbow so uh, who knows what's going to happen in the future but right now we can celebrate what they've done to date um, so starting with our base stats they are currently the Mets rotation is currently second in ERA at 3.3 they trail the uh, the Cubs who have some serious run prevention Uh, Run preventing skills on defense that the Mets obviously lack. Um, But the Mets are first in FIP at 3.1, and first in F4 at 10.8. Problems with FIP and F4 aside, this is just the uh, simplest go-to metric uh, that we really have available. So uh, we've already seen that the Mets are dominating the season, the Mets rotation is dominating the season, and it's not particularly close between them and uh, the next best rotation in baseball. Uh, One of the big statistical points that people are celebrating this year is uh, Clayton Kershaw's absolutely absurd strikeout-to-walk ratio. Um, uh, Even with the recent back issues, he currently has... uh, I could pull it up right here. He's currently... uh, Clayton Kershaw's currently sitting at 145 strikeouts against 9 walks, which is good for a 16.11 strike-out-to-walk ratio. Easily the best in baseball. Uh, second best is Noah Syndergaard at 7.53, so it's not even particularly close. However, uh, along that same vein, the Mets as a club uh, are currently dominating this statistic. The, uh, Kershaw's doing the best he can to help the Dodgers out, but the Mets right now, Uh, for their entire rotation, has a 4.25 strikeout-to-walk ratio. The next best in baseball is the Dodgers at 3.79. So so the the Mets are blowing every other rotation in baseball out in this metric, similar to how Kershaw is doing uh, to every other starting pitcher in baseball, though obviously to not as extreme a degree. To appreciate this a bit more, we can look at it in historical context, and obviously, strikeout to walk, strikeout and walk numbers have fluctuated over the years, so it's not the not a perfect metric uh, to compare eras. But if we look back to 1969, the Mets have the highest. The Mets rotation right now has the highest strikeout to walk ratio of any rotation ever at 4.25. So that's really impressive uh, on its own. It might be just one or perhaps a combination of two metrics, strikeouts and walks. Um, But it's very rare for, or almost obviously completely unheard of, for a team to strike out this many batters and walk this few. Looking at the second place team on the list from 1969 onwards, uh, we see the 2011 Phillies. Uh, And that ties in nicely to the second stat I wanted to bring up today. Uh, The 2011 Phillies... Rotation, as I'm sure we all remember, was ridiculously, stupidly good. Uh, Roy Halliday, Cliff Lee, Roy Oswald, Cole Hamels, and then uh, good seasons from Joe Blanton and Vance Worley. Uh, and they posted 26 wins in 1,064 innings. Uh, now, prior to the season, uh, because I like wishcasting these things, I mentioned it when I was on the podcast with Jeff. And I also uh, wrote about it, I believe, how I thought the Mets rotation this year had a chance to match these Phillies. Uh, and, and it's very important to emphasize had a chance here. Whenever you're pushing for a record as, as absurd as 26 WAR from your rotation, uh, it's always a small chance. Let's check in on that briefly. The 2011 Phillies rotation, like I said, posted 26 wins in 1,064 innings. Uh, little division and that comes out to 0.02443 uh, war per inning pitched so uh, best mark of all time the 2016 Mets to date have pitched 441 in the third innings uh, they've accrued 10.8 war do some division and you come out with 0.02447 war per inning pitched. So the Mets' rotation, which to date is getting uh, a breakout performance from Noah Syndergaard, but also, uh, an, I think we can comfortably say, an underperformance from Matt Harvey, is slightly, very, by the slimmest of margins, exceeding the 2011 Phillies. It's less than half a season of data, and the margin is very slim, but at this pace, the Mets' starters will match the greatest rotation of all time. Uh, so that's really an impressive achievement, even if it's only for half a season, uh, and even if the Mets rotation blows up in the next two weeks, and Noah Syndergaard and Steven Matz, uh, well, I guess Matz is more likely to undergo ser- surgery than uh, Thor at this point. Uh, but we can point to this as part of the Mets were absolutely brilliant this year, even if the offense never comes around and the season putters out. Part of this Mets team was the best starting rotation of all time. And that's your weekly stat.
1: Look, I don't know what to tell you guys anymore. The Mets are just not playing good baseball. They can't hit, they can't pitch, they can't play the field, they can't run. There's just nothing going right. They are currently five games back. They're tied for second because the Marlins just lost. It's Wednesday afternoon, so they haven't been swept by the Nats yet. But I'm gonna go ahead and venture that they will by the time you listen to this podcast, because it's Max Scherzer and Logan Verrett and Alejandro Diaz is getting starts again, and it's. I just don't even have no words for this. I think, I think this is worse than last year, last June and July. Because I think we all expected more coming into this year, so it hurts more when they just blatantly fail us. And who the heck knows what kind of replacements are coming in? Syndergaard and Mats have their bone spurs. Mats might be out, might not be. Syndergaard says he's fine. Harvey's still pitching like Harvey. Cologne was hit. It's just, it's so ugly. They've got Jose Reyes coming in, I mean, probably a week at this point. Who knows if he can help? Um, There's just, there's not much. Darno is throwing better. Darnot is hitting better, but it's not helping. And it's just, I don't know what to tell you guys, but if you want to panic, you're probably allowed to start panicking.
5: Folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you to all of our contributors for contributing, and thanks to all of you for listening. You can email the show at podcast at AmazingAvenueAudio.com. You can always find Amazing Avenue on Twitter. Instagram, and Facebook. Just search for Amazing Avenue. Of course, we are on the interwebs at AmazingAvenue.com. Go there for more Mets content than you probably should be reading in this dire state of the team. You know, we don't want to give you a heart attack or anything, but Look for out, look out for the good news on there. Hopefully, there is a fair amount of that. You can follow all of our contributors on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. Steve is at underscore Mr. Met. Lucas is at Elv Lajos 343. Aaron is at APY 5000. And Milo, who you just met for the first time this week, uh, Milo Taby, is at Milo Tabey, at M I L O T A I B I. Uh, Thanks again for checking this out. And by the time we talk next week, hopefully we have some more positive things to say. And so until then, let's go Mets.